You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Atrial fibrillation, to ablate or not to ablate. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bradley Knight, Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago Medical Center in the section of cardiology. Dr. Knight is also the Director of Electrophysiology at the University of Chicago. And today we're going to talk about atrial fibrillation and some of the more emerging techniques to try to treat this very common rhythm. We're going to talk about some of the mechanical interventions, specifically atrial fibrillation ablation. Welcome to the program, Dr. Knight. Thank you very much. Let's talk a little bit about atrial fibrillation and some of the approaches that we can use with catheters and with mechanical techniques, specifically atrial fibrillation ablation. Can you tell us what exactly is ablation and what we're trying to achieve with this technique? I'd be happy to. This is a great new field in electrophysiology. Catheter ablation in general has been around using radio frequency current for about 20 years and has been applied primarily to very focal abnormal substrates such as accessory pathways, slow pathways, atrial flutter. About seven years ago, it became clear that the pulmonary veins are a very important source of both the triggers and maintenance of atrial fibrillation in some patients. And we have developed strategies in the last few years to attack the pulmonary vein region to cure some patients with atrial fibrillation. Now, this is very surprising to me that the pulmonary veins are now implicated in atrial fibrillation. The teaching years ago was the atrium gets big and fibrillation can occur anywhere. How do we know or how did we discover that the pulmonary veins, which are on the left side of the heart, are involved in atrial fibrillation? Well, it's a great story, actually, because this territory had been relatively ignored by both electrophysiologists and anatomists for years. The story apparently is a group from France in Bordeaux, Dr. Michel Hossiger and his group, who really revolutionized this understanding, sort of incidentally had catheters in the pulmonary veins when they were trying to ablate an accessory pathway in a patient who was having atrial fibrillation and identified that the origin of the ectopy that was triggering it was coming from the pulmonary veins. Further work really recognized that the pulmonary veins have muscle sleeves that had also not been well described in the pathology literature that extend from the atrium well into the pulmonary veins, even a couple centimeters, especially in the upper veins. So there there appears to be atrial myocardium that goes up into the pulmonary veins that is a source of atrial fibrillation. As you mentioned, the atria enlarge and can cause a substrate for reentry in atrial fibrillation. And that may be the source of atrial fibrillation in a lot of patients with structural heart disease. But in the patients who have a normal appearing atrium, the pulmonary veins appear to be a very important source. Uh, if I remember my anatomy, in most patients we have four pulmonary veins. Is there a particular pulmonary vein which is more often implicated? Well, the histology studies have shown that the upper pulmonary veins have larger muscle sleeves that extend into them. The veins themselves are also larger. So the right and left upper veins appear to be the more common source Our current techniques, however, empirically attack all four pulmonary veins because it's often unclear during the procedure when patients come in and sinus rhythm which vein is really the culprit vein. Now, the veins are on the left side, obviously, and we need to get our catheters over there. So can you describe just in general how an ablation procedure is done and how you get the catheters over to the pulmonary veins? Yeah, so an ablation procedure for atrial fibrillation is a little bit more extensive and and time-consuming than a standard ablation for AV nodal reentry, for example. The procedure is performed by going from the femoral veins in in most cases and performing transeptal catheterization. 
This is being performed quite commonly now, guided with other imaging modalities to increase the safety of that procedure with intracardiac echo, for example. But we gain access to the left atrium, usually with two catheters, by doing a double transeptal catheterization. And once you're in the pulmonary veins, how actually is the ablation done? Is it a heat source that you use to put a scar, or or how is ablation done? Well, ablation in general has been done with radiofrequency current. It creates a lesion about the size of a pea with a typical 4-millimeter tip ablation electrode. The tip of the catheter actually does not get hot. It delivers energy into the surrounding tissue, which heats up that tissue, and the goal is to create a permanent small scar. So you basically cook that small amount of tissue and eliminate any electrical activity in that tissue. There's newer alternative energy sources that are being developed. One which is uh, available is cryoenergy, which actually freezes the tissue. It has been used in the operating room by surgeons for a while for arrhythmia surgery, but is now available on the tip of a catheter. But in general, most procedures are performed using radiofrequency current, and we ablate point by point with the, the tip of the catheter around the pulmonary veins to electrically eliminate any signals in the pulmonary veins. Now, you mentioned that this may not be the mechanism of atrial fibrillation in everybody. So what are the characteristics that you look for? How do you choose a ideal candidate for ablation therapy? Well, that's a good question. The ideal candidate I would describe as the following. Uh, a younger patient who has idiopathic, meaning no evident structural heart disease, uh, paroxysmal rather than persistent atrial fibrillation. And we also, in terms of candidacy for the procedure, look for people who are symptomatic and patients who have failed at least one antirhythmic drug regimen. So the optimal patient would fall in that category. The Probably the opposite end of the spectrum would be an older patient who has persistent atrial fibrillation because of structural heart disease, such as congestive heart failure, especially in a patient who's minimally symptomatic or has not tried any medical therapy or cardioversions in the past. If you have one of these younger patients that fits the criteria but has been in atrial fibrillation for, oh, six months or a year, does that make the ability to do an ablation less successful? Is there a time limit that you wouldn't try an ablation? It really depends on the individual patient, but it is fair to recognize the longer the patient's been in atrial fibrillation, the more structural changes occur in the atrium and probably the less effective ablation would be. Now, if we saw a patient who was found to be an atrial fibrillation of unknown duration and had been in it for, for potentially six months or a year, we might not be as excited about offering ablation. You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and my guest today is Dr. Bradley Knight from the University of Chicago, and we are discussing atrial fibrillation and the new atrial fibrillation ablation technique. Dr. Knight, what is the success rate that uh, you've seen by doing atrial fibrillation ablation? The success rate for atrial fibrillation ablation is unfortunately not as high as the success rate for simpler ablations such as accessory pathways, but it has improved over time. And the optimal patient who would be a patient with idiopathic paroxysmal atrial fibrillation has a success rate between 75 and 80% with one procedure, and that may, may be improved if the patient requires a second procedure. A patient who has chronic or persistent atrial fibrillation, the success rate is probably significantly lower, between 50 and 60%. The procedure itself also differs in that we perform more aggressive ablation in those patients who have persistent atrial fibrillation. 
What are the potential complications of the procedure? Well, the complication rate is probably between 3 and 5% based on the literature and on, a, and on our experience. The complications that I inform patients of prior to the procedure are approximately a 1% risk of perforation or tamponade, which usually can be treated pretty quickly with pericardiocentesis if needed. There's about a 1% risk of thromboembolic or stroke, and the risk of this is minimized by many, many different maneuvers, both during and after the procedure, one of which is to actively anticoagulate the patient with heparin during the procedure. We use intracardiac echo to visualize any thrombi that occurred during the procedure. And then the patients are treated with heparin injections or Lovenox until their Coumadin is therapeutic, and they're treated with Coumadin for about two months after the procedure. So this is in patients even who did not have an, have an indication for Coumadin before. They're all treated with warfarin after the procedure to reduce the risk of stroke. There's about a 1% risk of pulmonary vein stenosis as well from ablation around the pulmonary vein ostea. This risk is probably much less than it was about five years ago because we're ablating more on the atrial aspect of the pulmonary vein left atrial junction or antrum as people call it and are more careful about targeting the veins themselves. There's a couple other much more rare complications, but we, we make sure patients are aware that there's been some descriptions of left atrial esophageal fistulas. Fortunately, I've not had the misfortune of that complication, but it's clearly been described, and I'm, I'm aware of some cases that have been lethal because of thermal damage to the esophagus and a fistula between the left atrium and the esophagus. There is a rare chance of damage to the to the phrenic nerve. There's been some diaphragmatic paralysis from ablation near the phrenic nerve, which is located close to the right superior, right inferior pulmonary vein in some patients. This often resolves over time, much like phrenic nerve damage from coronary bypass surgery. So those are the five major complications. I should just mention that left atrial flutter is another prorhythmic complication from the procedure and may be related to linear lesions in the atrium with gaps that can cause reentry and cause proarrhythmia in the left atrium. How common is atrial fibrillation ablation becoming? And I, I guess corollary to that question is, is it now considered a standard technique or is this still investigational? Well, it's increasingly common, that's for sure. I think it's still mainly at the larger academic and private medical centers. I certainly not every EP laboratory in the country is performing ablation for atrial fibrillation, but it's definitely becoming more more prevalent. The issue of whether catheter ablation is standard of care, I think is uh, emphasized in the new guidelines that I mentioned earlier, that catheter ablation really has become second and third line therapy for atrial fibrillation, depending on the patient. And in patients who have no or minimal structural heart disease who have failed antiarrhythmic drug therapy, catheter ablation is now second line therapy. So it's no longer considered investigational. I think that there certainly are clinical trials and investigational protocols that are ongoing, which certainly we encourage patients to participate in these trials. But aside from that, standard ablation with radiofrequency current is considered standard of care for patients who have failed drugs. So it is currently then a procedure which is reimbursed? Yes, it's reimbursed uh, much like a supraventricular tachycardia ablation. Following atrial fibrillation ablation, uh, the recommendation is to use Coumadin for a while, I presume uh, partly for the healing process, but since the success rate is not 100% and patients can have a recurrence of the atrial fibrillation, uh, shouldn't we consider maybe using Coumadin lifelong in some of these subjects? Yeah, that's a very good question, and it's somewhat controversial. 
based on recent trials, it's increasingly clear that patients in general should be uh, maintained on anticoagulation even when we are using a rhythm control strategy. However, it is clear that some patients can be completely cured with catheter ablation. And unlike drug therapy, I think if we can confirm that there's no asymptomatic recurrences, there's probably a subset of patients who could eliminate their need for warfarin long-term. In general, however, we tend to err on the side of maintaining them on Coumadin to reduce the risk of stroke. There have been some preliminary studies, a paper in circulation from the group at Michigan that showed that the thromboembolic risk was extremely low in patients who had uh, one or less risk factor for stroke after a successful catheter ablation procedure. I want to thank Dr. Bradley Knight, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing atrial fibrillation and the technique of atrial fibrillation ablation. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.